HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee. Learn about the wonderfully tart Montmorency cherry at choosecherries.com. This is Meant to be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Coralie, recording from my apartment in Brooklyn. Lori Flores is an associate professor of history at Stony Brook University, whose research focuses on Latino life, labor, and politics in the United States. Today, we'll be talking about farm workers' rights, or lack of, amid the pandemic, and why it might take something as rattling as this to affect lasting change. Welcome to the show, Lori. Thank you so much, Coral. I'm so happy to talk with you. Um, so where are you calling from us today? Or where are you calling us from today? Uh, I am calling from my apartment in Windsor Terrace, Brooklyn, so just south of Prospect Park, which is a very busy zone. That's really funny. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I would. I was about to ask you across streets, but I guess it's kind of private. But I think you're very much neighbors, so waving across them. I guess waving to you from across the park. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So yeah, that's funny. Since we're in the same neighborhood, um, how have you noticed food delivery? Um, grocery and takeout to have changed within the past two months, if at all? Yeah, it's super interesting. Like I'm definitely looking out my window and noticing what's what's happening because um, first of all, the fresh direct grocery trucks all on the street every single day, like that has not changed in this whole time I've been observing what's been happening with the pandemic. So I know that at least someone on my street is getting a grocery order in every day. Um, the deliveries, the food deliveries, I really have seen a steady stream of them. Um, they've definitely still been happening at the pace that they were before. Um, the virus lockdown happened here in New York. And so um, I have been noticing, though, a difference in the ways that food is getting delivered by um, messengers. So there are still the food delivery people who come by their own bicycles or their scooters, But now I'm seeing many more people come via car. And that is interesting because some of these drivers in cars are new drivers that have been paired with restaurants and businesses that hadn't been using delivery before. So there's some additional car traffic on my street. And that's because of this kind of new system of getting food to people. Yeah. Yeah, And I don't know if you've looked into this yet, but um, do you know if there's higher risk of these new car drivers, you know, not adhering to safety standards, or if this is overall, you know, like a good and necessity thing that's happening? 
Yeah, I've been thinking about that a lot. It's it's really interesting, and it's certainly something that I've been more mindful of right now. So these drivers um, that are employed by big delivery services like Seamless or Caviar or Uber Eats, sometimes, um, most times, these workers were not employed by the restaurant or business before. They've been paired with them because of the circumstances. And so what the restaurants and businesses are kind of worried about is that um, they have trained their workers in their own kitchens, in their own ways, how to handle food, how to uh, properly sanitize, like the, sa- the safety standards of those businesses inside are not necessarily getting matched with the sanitation standards once that food leaves the establishment with these drivers. So I know that some business owners are worried that uh, all the care that they put into making sure your food is safe and sanitary Um, Once they put it into the hands of a driver who they don't know and who wasn't employed by them to begin with, there is this um, anxiety that goes along with your food uh, through those drivers. So I have been making it a practice to now call uh, restaurants and establishments and ask them, you know, what they would prefer me to do, because if it's walkable, then I'm happy to go and pick it up myself. Um, And I've been doing that a lot more once I started realizing that um, all of these car drivers necessarily wouldn't be following the same practices as the businesses. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's actually a really key key thing is um, what you've mentioned is calling the restaurants and asking what they'd prefer because it's not only um, what feels safest for them and you, but also you know you're cutting out the middleman. Um, a lot of these delivery apps. So can you speak to those? Um, I haven't been following them too much, but I do know they um, kind of cut out the fee for a little bit, but now, you know, I heard that you, you'll eventually have to end up paying it back. So I don't know if you can yeah. enlighten us a little bit. Yeah, the fees have been fluctuating and now they're really high. So I've been paying attention to uh, the seamless fees. They have gone up a lot and already consumers were kind of confused what delivery fee means versus uh, driver's tips. Um, I certainly have been confused myself about if the delivery fee simply 100% goes to uh, seamless versus how much goes to the restaurant versus does any trickle down to the actual person who I see at my doorstep? Um, And is my tip on top of that, does it all go to that that worker? And so it continues to be um, a point of contention. I know that certainly we saw the... um, the Instacart workers complain that uh, tips can be removed from uh, their wages if a consumer at the very last minute decides not to tip them, if that person gets frustrated with the time it takes for that food to come, or if a consumer wants to entice an Instacart worker with a large tip and then decreases it or takes it away. That's creating a lot of frustration on the part of um These workers who spend a lot of time and energy and panic, personal panic of getting food to people within the right time, uh, traversing, you know, a certain distance in a certain amount of time. And so uh, there's been a lot of confusion um, and anger around how these fees are working and how much of them are actually trickling down to the person who's doing the work of going to the stores to get groceries for somebody else or delivering the food. So um, I would encourage people to just kind of do whatever research they can on their preferred service. 
because the more questions we ask of these companies and how they treat their workers, the more it will become a, a greater part of food culture to have the consumer ask questions on behalf of the worker and not just on behalf of the food items that they're getting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so let's let's actually telescope a bit outwards. Um, we we're talking about takeout delivery workers as well as um, grocery delivery workers, but there's also you know restaurant workers, farm workers, meat packers, truckers, grocery workers. All these people are doing the very insanely hard and scary work of keeping us fed. You know, stuff that we are too terrified to do. Um, and so, in that way, they are essential workers. But you know, like you said, they're they're risking a lot for not very much. And so what is being negotiating here? Um, If, you know, put us in the mindset of a farm worker or one of these grocery store workers, what, what are the pros and cons? Yes, absolutely. I've been thinking about this a lot just because uh, back in March and April, I had the virus um, and it was a few weeks of uh, being scared in a way that really made me think about uh, the circumstances of of people around me and of food workers in particular. So what the virus does, at least in my experience, is that it fatigues you beyond a point that you thought you could p- be fatigued. Um, it's pretty terrifying. You feel, you know, all your systems just kind of getting invaded. Uh, you can't concentrate on much for more than a few minutes. Um, I lost my sense of smell and taste. So <laughs> I was burning a lot of my meals in my kitchen and couldn't smell the smoke. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. There was just no sense that I could monitor my world in the same way. And, you know, feeling Mm -hmm. anxiety and tightness in the chest. I mean, it certainly just makes you feel scared of, of what you'd have to do in certain circumstances. And so I kept thinking to myself, you know, yes, I have, you know, all these symptoms, but I had so much privilege. I had a private dwelling that I could call my own. I had a sense of privacy I had a job I could continue to do online. You know, I could continue to teach. I still had health insurance. I still had telemedicine. Um, I had internet in my home to communicate with people. I had so many luxuries that farm workers don't have. Um, And that's all I kept thinking about. So farm workers, um, a lot of farm workers in this country, millions of them are incredibly vulnerable. They're If they're undocumented, even more so. Um, But there's also a lot of guest workers in our nation working in our agricultural industry that are guest workers legally contracted. Um, And then, of course, we have U.S. citizens who also work in the farm and food industries. So no matter if you're uh, undocumented, a guest worker, or a citizen, everything is precarious. No matter um, what you're you're doing in terms of... um, your status and position in the food industry, because I've been hearing, you know, not only are farm workers already getting challenged by circumstances they already had to endure. So oftentimes they're housed altogether in very crowded, dilapidated uh, trailers, um, overcrowded bunkhouses, cheap motel rooms. Um, And they are doing this either because they can't afford private dwellings or because their employers are putting them up in, in this kind of housing. Um, and also, you know, the health conditions that they had to endure before are, are getting um, amplified. And uh, this can range from anything from, you know, physical pain from the kind of work you do on an assembly line or in a vegetable field if you're harvesting crops to if you're inhaling pesticides on a daily basis. You know, like these conditions existed long before the pandemic that farm workers' bodies were 
being subjected to and ingesting a lot of undesirable things. So pesticide drift, um, farm workers often have to work in extreme weather, cold and heat. They are housed in, uh, you know, places of shelter that don't, don't offer much in the way of ventilation or heating and cooling. So it's, it made me think of all of the things already happening um, for food workers in this country and farm workers are at the bottom of that chain that made my position so privileged because I could enjoy all of the things that I did, even though I, I felt um, anxious about my own situation. It's nothing compared to what I know is going on in the meat packing plants, um, in grocery stores where you know some of my own students work um, at the stop and shops or at CVSs or places where they have to deal with the public on a daily basis. So it's made me think about the people in the backs of kitchens, the delivery workers, like you said, the delivery um, truck drivers. My stepdad delivers bread all around rural South Texas to people. So it made me think about all the people who have had to continue working um, despite their own fears about, you know, how their bodies might react uh, in this time of the virus. Right, right. And before we get into that, let's actually just take a quick break. This episode is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee. Representing 75% of the U.S.-grown Montmorency tart cherry production, with over 100 articles published in health journals stating the vast health benefits of Michigan's superfruit, it's best to choose the cherry with more. U.S. Montmorency tart cherries. They're available year-round, dried, frozen, canned, juice, and concentrate. Learn more about the wonderfully U.S.-grown Montmorency tart cherry at ChooseCherries.com. And we're back. This is Meant to Be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. I'm speaking with Lori Flores, who is an associate professor of history at Stony Brook University. We were just speaking about farm workers' conditions. And so, yeah, let's actually talk about that. In the story you wrote for Food 52, you were talking about how, you know, it's very frustrating right now, but also this is nothing new. So can you talk about the Bracero program? Sure. Yeah. In my Food 52 piece, um, I did mention the Bracero program which was one of the longest running guest worker programs, not only in U.S. history, but in the history of the world. So we imported braceros, Mexican male guest workers, uh, beginning in the World War II period. So in 1942, the U.S. and Mexican governments signed a binational agreement in which uh, Mexican men could come and work in U.S. agriculture and railroads in exchange for certain protections. So um, they were promised, these braceros were promised a free transportation to and from their work sites if they were employed by um, agricultural or railroad employers in the U.S. They were promised adequate food, adequate housing, and a health insurance plan um, and death benefits or injury benefits. During the duration of the program, which ended up lasting far beyond the World War II period. It lasted until 1964, so almost a quarter of a century. Uh, during the tenure of the program, a lot of these promises that the government and the agricultural employers told Braceros they would be experiencing, these promises often got broken. So a lot of unsafe transportation characterized the program. Um, Braceros were dying all the time and getting injured in transportation accidents to and from the fields. 
um, or to and from the railroad tracks. Uh, the food that they received in their dining halls or their mess halls was often not up to par. Not only was it not enough food because they were doing such hard labor, um, not enough caloric intake, but also just not nutritious enough. Um, and it's so deeply ironic, right, that the workers we depend on so much to harvest our food and get our food to us go so malnourished themselves mm-hmm. in their daily labor. Um, and also, like I said before, the housing that they were often put up in, totally overcrowded, um, lacked uh, enough bathrooms for dozens of men crammed into one bunkhouse, lacked a kitchen with proper ventilation, which led to a lot of incidents and house fires and that sort of thing. And also just a lack of real and easy access to doctors and medical care. So workers in the fields, both during the Bracero program and today, deal with a lot of hesitancy in complaining if they feel any pain or if they've gotten injured just because um, it's often discouraged to, you know, to go to your supervisor and report this because sometimes supervisors either tell you, you know, you're being a baby, go back to work, um, or there's no way we can get you to a doctor right now and just suck it up. Um, or these doctors and hospitals are many, many miles away. Um, and because of language barriers and sometimes because of undocumented status, a lot of people, both during the Bracero program and still now in the 21st century, feel a lot of apprehension about seeking out medical care, especially if they feel vulnerable when it comes to their immigration status. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so here I feel like what I'm hearing from what you're saying is there's this huge tension between these workers being treated as essential, but their rights do not reflect that. And so um, how might you also say this is eliminated in the new directive where, you know, there's um, a crackdown on immigration, but, you know, as many agricultural workers as needed can come in? The Bracero program definitely established a pattern in the United States in which the agricultural industry and a lot of industries actually, um, when it comes to the world of food, got very used to having this reservoir of foreign cheaper labor to rely upon. And what's happening now is that the government, like you said, is still deeming these workers essential, saying you need to come and do your jobs. We need to keep importing these guest workers. We need to keep having people show up in the fields. And this is totally hypocritical when it comes to our long history of treating these workers um, with much less respect and compensation than they deserve. So um, during the Bracero program, again, you know, a lot of promises were broken in terms of what was what was uh, told would be given to them in terms of wages. And that sort of thing is still happening today. So the Trump administration has even pondered uh, seriously this idea of slashing the wages of H2A guest workers who are coming to work in the fields as this sort of gesture to keeping the agricultural industry going. But that is the kind of pattern that the Bracero program established. It got the agricultural industry used to being able to enjoy cheaper, non-unionized foreign labor and getting to have that program renewed by Congress over and over again. So in essence, agribusiness has benefited from like one of the largest and longest subsidies from the government, which is all of this imported labor. And so that hasn't changed. So the kind of agricultural labor that we see being imported into our fields today, it's simply 
sort of a reincarnation of the braceros that we had back in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I feel like, um, I mean, we can talk, you know, for hours on that, but it feels like we reached a bit of a standstill there. Um, and so a few weeks ago, it seemed to be that there are a few confirmed clusters of agriculture workers in central Washington. And so in response, Oregon has actually, you know, provided sanitation officers that um, enforce breaks and meals and have provided better sanitation uh, better um, toilet and hand-washing stations and have removed bunk beds and um, in in California as well. um, Some farm workers are now able to offer their employees um, 80 hours of paid sick leave. But, you know, this this kind of feels like it's not enough. And so what do you think still needs to be done? Right. Um, Yeah, I've been keeping up with what has been happening in terms of the Pacific Northwest um, and other regions of the country that are trying to address the problems that are inevitably coming up because some companies simply waited too long um, Mm -hmm. to put these precautions into place. So I I definitely don't think we've done enough. There are definitely some employers out there who are trying to do the right things and treat their workers uh, humanely, but more often than not, we are seeing uh, farm workers out in the fields and workers in meatpacking plants and even warehouses of, you know, grocery delivery services or Blue Apron, you know, these other prepackaged companies that we really do need to pay attention to what additional protections they need. So some companies are finally coming around to things like taking the temperatures of the workers before their shifts, uh, rotating them during their shifts. Uh, installing, you know, like you said, these plexiglass barriers between people or moving them further apart in their housing. Um, But there are many ways in which this kind of um, action being taken is coming too late. And it's often not getting enforced enough, even when it is put into place. So um, like I was saying, you know, earlier, there are already Uh, many things about farm workers' conditions that put them at greater risk physically for contracting COVID-19. So their immune systems are already weakened. Um, They are already working, you know, in these backbreaking jobs, a lot of overtime, especially during the harvest season, they are made to work, you know, anywhere from 10 to 14 hours a day, um, often not with a day of rest, so seven days a week. Uh, the air that they're breathing, if they're outside in fields where pesticides are being sprayed, obviously they're exposed to that. Um, if they're inside of a processing plant, there could be some chemicals um, that are toxic and not great to be ingested um, anyway, let alone before the pandemic, um, where your body is even uh, at greater risk for being weakened. And also, even though some employers have been making efforts to put toilets and washing stations, you know, out in the fields or make them more available to people in factories. The fact that this isn't uh, being enforced on a federal level, that we don't have the infrastructure and we don't have enough workers on the ground from the Department of Labor inspectors who can go and make sure that employers are really following all of these um, precautions when it comes to sanitation, when it comes to spreading people out in um, housing If we don't have that, we don't really have true peace of mind that the kind of changes that employers and companies are claiming to make are actually making a difference. In fact, you know, what we're reading is that, um, you know, lots of people have been asymptomatic. Um, 
the infection has spread, the illness has spread to a lot of people already. Um, and that when you really look at what's going on in the daily operations of these companies, there aren't enough people who can be watchdogs in essence to sort of say like, this isn't making as much change as you think it's making. Um, Mm -hmm. And so the farm workers and the, you know, meat and poultry workers and restaurant workers and delivery workers, they are too vulnerable to be able to control the situation a lot of the time. So even if they had grievances, even if they're noticing something, which I guarantee you they are because they are watching all the time what's happening in, in their communities and communicating with each other about it, they are upset, they're scared, they're angry, um, and they're trying to to speak back and to fight back, but they do need us as consumers on the other side to amplify their voices. Because if we don't, then it's very easy for them to get silenced um, by employers who try to reassure the public, like we're doing everything Mm -hmm. that is needed. Um, If we talk to the actual workers themselves, we would definitely get um, more illumination on what's really happening day by day and hour by hour in their workplaces. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this threat of deportation, as well as, you know, language barrier, um, and also coupled with this kind of not lie, but justification that COVID can't be transmitted through food is what kind of lets these lack of protections continue. And so even if coronavirus cannot be transmitted through food, how will coronavirus dismantle um, the various arms of our food system? Yes, it's very easy uh, for the coronavirus in a matter of weeks to definitely impact our food system and the way that food gets to us. In a few weeks, we would absolutely feel the loss of a food supply if COVID-19 is transmitted through a lot of workers, which we're already seeing proof that it is, that it's spreading throughout thousands of them. So if we think of you know the food chain as a true chain, right? It's a chain of workers and a chain of movement that gets our food from farm to table. Um, If we start at the bottom with any outbreaks amongst farm workers working out in the fields, that already takes away um, a very needed workforce at harvest time. So um, in very basic terms, crops will die. They won't um, get to market. And the ones that do end up getting to supermarkets, grocery stores, and restaurants will be higher priced because they're Mm -hmm. so scarce. So right off the bat, if we were to see um, an outbreak in farm worker communities, in more of them, in more regions, um, which if we don't control this properly, it will start happening uh, in more states. That already is really scary to to think about, Um, not only on a human level, but also on the level like our our food system would already start to go into um, disarray. And then if we go one step up to processing workers, the people who are you know, working in meat and poultry and canning things for us and putting stuff into boxes and packaging all of our food items. Um, One step further there, we're already seeing that happening in Smithfield, Tyson, Butterball, all of these companies that we take for granted as, oh, that somehow that animal gets processed or that Mm -hmm. food item gets processed and it shows up on the shelves for us. Um, recently Tyson, for instance, offered a financial incentive of $500 to each worker who didn't miss their shift for three months. Um, and this made workers really upset. It not only coerces and forces people to come in and make that extra money, 
So someone might ignore symptoms they have or not admit that they have symptoms because they want to go and make that extra money. But in essence, it punishes anyone who ends up getting infected. Um, it makes them feel like they lost out on something or they're being deprived of something. Um, so that's a complicated scenario uh, in processing plants already, that there there is this culture of show up to work, um, even though you might not be feeling well, uh, under this pressure. Again, that's coming from the federal government, too, of we need to still see our, our meat showing up in our stores and in our restaurants. And then if you move up the chain again, you know, from farm workers to processing workers, then to distributors, you have people who, like my stepdad, for instance, is a delivery truck driver. Um, And if that person gets sick, then their routes, their delivery routes, the way that they get stuff into corner stores, gas stations, schools, prisons, um, all of these places where we take for granted that food will show up. Um, If they start getting sick, um, then that uh, starts affecting um, things higher up, and then let alone what's happening in restaurant labor today, where again, you know, a lot of our restaurant labor force is undocumented, is un- uh, vulnerable, is um, the precariat, and so people with these back of the house, less visible jobs, without protections, are feeling that same pressure to come in and work. Um, and as long as we have this landscape in place in which certain workers are kept far away from our eyes and thus far away from our minds, um, we won't really understand what it means to have a food chain. I think what the pandemic has done that has been important is that it's called greater attention to the ways in which uh, food moves through the system to get to us. And Mm -hmm. those of us who are privileged enough to be on the other side of it, uh, we need to, again, you know, be more aware and speak out louder for those people who, because of various um, vulnerabilities, feel like they can't complain too loudly for fear of losing their job, for fear of um, getting targeted, even getting deported. Um, all of these things are, you know, going in people's minds as reasons why they should stay quiet. And so, those of us with the privilege of not having to stay quiet can can be advocates and allies for them during mm-hmm. this time. Yeah, so before we get into um, ways we can help as consumers, I actually want to get into that um, Tyson check, which, you know, just feels like in in such ill form. But um, if that did not work so well, um, do you have any sense of whether stimulus checks have helped any? That's a really good question. And uh, you're definitely not the only one who's been wondering that. So stimulus checks uh, are helping people who have a record of filing with the IRS, who have social security Mm -hmm. numbers. Um, So it's taking care of a certain sector of our um, food worker population, but definitely undocumented immigrants are not experiencing any um, help in in that form anyway. So far, only the state of California has said that undocumented immigrants will receive economic aid. They've put a that state has put aside um, $125 million in funds to undocumented immigrants in the state excluded from the CARES Act. So, so far, California has been the only state to acknowledge that a lot of industries um, are powered by undocumented labor. Unfortunately, New York has not made that same admittance, um, even though so much of our, not only you know food industry, but tons of industries 
are working because undocumented immigrants are a part of our society, have been for a long time, um, and continue to be neglected when it comes to this kind of help. So um, also this business of people not getting their stimulus checks in a timely fashion if they're married to an immigrant is pretty mm-hmm. um, disgusting, disgusting to me, you know, just because this is part of a larger climate or a larger discourse of um, immigrants sort of being outsiders of being um, worth less in our society or devalued in certain ways that I think is just so contradictory to the way that our country really operates. Our our country really operates because um, of a lot of these people who are working in these oftentimes invisible occupations um, that we don't think about too much when we're thinking about the final product that we're able to consume. And so stimulus checks are helping certain people, but if we think about the most vulnerable people, they are not only neglected anyway in in the regular course of daily life, but now even more so in this time of the pandemic, they're being neglected also economically in this way as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So then as consumers, um, you mentioned using our voices, but um, where where should we direct, you know, our questions or frustrations to, or what else can we do? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, um, it takes some time to really think about, you know, how you want to direct your allyship and your time and energy and advocacy. Um, what's really heartening to me is that there have already been uh, really helpful and impactful labor organizations in place that are continuing to do the hard and impressive work of speaking out for uh, food workers. So the United Farm Workers um, are a national union that's been in place for many decades, um, mostly West Coast based. Uh, the Coalition of Immokalee Workers, uh, which has helped organize the tomato industry in Florida, is still doing fantastic work. There are organizations like uh, the Food Chain Workers Alliance, who you can follow on social media, National Council for Farm Worker Health. Um, they are keeping all of us informed with reports and circulating good food journalism that takes into account the worker as much as the food. Um, the United Food and Commercial Workers Union has been around for a long time um, and continuing to speak out for, for vulnerable people who are working in grocery stores and, and other sectors of the food industry. And I'm also heartened by um, very recently Ben & Jerry's is one example of a company that's come out and said publicly on its website we need to fight for a bill, uh, a congressional bill for essential workers' rights, for farm workers' rights. Um, So there are signs of hope already uh, when it comes to organizational strength um, and voices. But some concrete things that you can do, that we can do as individuals, um, is pay attention to certain things. So first of all, if you see a farm worker protection bill come up for a vote in your state, later this year, pay attention to to that sort of bill and pay attention to um, approving it, voting for it, telling your representatives you want something like that to pass. We have gone for so long in this nation without having any federal laws or bills related to farm worker protections. We have thrown the power to states to take care of that. And like we've seen, you know, California has been doing some things in terms of minimum wage and overtime pay. New York very recently passed its own statewide 
Farm Worker Fair Labor uh, Practices Act. Um, but first of all, pay attention to those kinds of laws because they might be coming on your radar um, later this year or soon in, in your state. Second, what we can do is when restaurants or businesses uh, come back, when we come back from this or start going out more, when establishments begin opening up, maybe that's several months ahead in the future, but when you come back and perhaps see that the price of items on menus has raised, don't balk at that um, because it's actually quite understandable that if businesses have come to realize that their workers can't be taken for granted um, in certain ways or need to be compensated you know, in greater ways, perhaps that business or establishment is raising the prices of our um, food items in order to then provide health insurance, for instance, to its employees or um, to raise wages for its employees or to provide overtime or sick pay. Mm-hmm. Um, and some people might say, well, why do, why do consumers have to be the ones to bear the brunt of that um, cost? We do need to start thinking more communally about our food system. For a really long time, we've been able to enjoy the prices that we have simply because mm-hmm. workers at the bottom are not getting paid enough. Um, And I don't think that's a tenable system. It's not a sustainable system. If we want to think about sustainability in a much larger way, we can't keep our food system operating that it has. Um, It should never have been normal. um, And so things need to change. So the same ways that we're um, thinking communally about wearing our masks for each other, uh, socially distancing for each other, we do need to think about food workers and farm workers as part of that each other that we're doing these things for to keep them healthy, to keep them safe, um, and to give them the compensation and respect that they deserve. Um, And like I said before, another thing you can do is pay attention to um, community initiatives. So, and pay attention to your local businesses, pick up the phone and ask that restaurant you want food from what they would prefer, um, what makes it better for their business, for keeping their employees employed, for keeping them going Um, Look at whether there are um, food security initiatives in your community. So some emergency food boxes in some places like Los Angeles have been put together for food workers and farm workers to ensure that they have adequate nutrition and adequate food supply um, because they're working so hard for us. So pay attention to food banks, community markets, ways that you can donate. If you are feeling food secure, make sure that other people in your community feel that same peace. Um, and then, you know, think about um, in the future, the questions that you can ask businesses to hold them accountable, not just for the food. So not just asking if the food is organic or locally sourced, but asking, you know, how are how are the workers treated? How are they compensated? Do they have health insurance at farmers markets? Ask about the workers and and how they're being um, treated and compensated and housed And some people might think these questions are super awkward to ask, but that's precisely the problem is that our culture has become one in which not asking these questions is okay. So I think we need to change our culture into one that asks those questions and makes them not awkward to ask anymore. Because really what this has shown us and brought to light is that there are a lot of people working in our behalf that we don't think about too often. Um, if we're not looking to research or if we're not looking to think about them. Of course, it's a part of 
my daily job, you know, to be thinking about these questions. But I know that there are a lot of well-intentioned people out there who simply just need to to know more, to be directed, you know, to to throw their time and their energy. And so I say all this as some, you know, suggestions of what you can do. But I think depending on where you are, there are people working on these issues of food. And so I think there's a lot of hope. If you look locally, you might find somebody who's already working on helping farm workers and food workers, and you can join in their efforts. A lot of great, great things um, to think about and implement. Thank you so much for joining me today, Laurie. Thank you so much, Coral. Meant to be Eaten is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.